Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Holoceans is an audacious piece. When I was artistic director of Lincoln Center Out of Doors in New York, 
I had started a dialogue with its producer, but realized it was too big a project for us to take on. We had concerns that the tank, weighing over 30,000 pounds when full, might crash through Lincoln Center's central fountain closet to the parking lot below. But in the early years of the Art Center, it was exactly the kind of risky and visionary work that I wanted to bring to the UAE, where the poetics of abstract performance could, could address urgent scientific and societal concerns. The response to Holocene was incredible. It became a platform for conversations about the facts of climate change, the practice of socially engaged art, and the wide-ranging implications of Abu Dhabi public policy around environmental readiness. We held forums around climate change responses within the energy sector and discussions about the impact of increasingly extreme climate conditions on the home countries of the many expats on campus. The tank's designer met with engineering students while the costume designer discussed her experimentation with materials in a theater design class. Every night, family, young families on campus came to watch the underwater performances in the tank instead of television before bedtime. Local filmmakers produced music videos repurposing images from the performance, including Rasha Amar's beautiful piece, which was just playing. CNN covered the piece, bringing the discussion of rising water levels to an even larger public. When considering whether I should include a project in the season, one early rule of thumb was, is there anyone else in the country who would consider bringing this project? No? Then this project needs us. Another was, does the work require multiple hyphens as a descriptor? Would it be rewarding to curious audience members? If so, then I wanted to share it with the community. During this engagement, bold and unprecedented for the region, I recognized that, that my reasons for wanting to be a part of the grand experiment of NYU Abu Dhabi were being realized. I still remember the call from Rachel Chanoff about the search for an executive artistic director for the Art Center at NYUAD. It was February 2014, and I was in the middle of programming summer festivals at Lincoln Center, where I served as the director of public programming. She explained that her company, the Office of Performing Arts and Film, was consulting with New York University as they planned to open their campus on Saudi Island, then under development as Abu Dhabi's new cultural district, which would include Louvre Abu Dhabi and the still upcoming Zayed National Museum and the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi. She described the larger project, a liberal arts college and research university with an elite student body from over 100 different countries, forming a radical experiment in transnational learning. As then provost Fabio Piano posed at my interview a few months later, what's the point of building if not for transformation? How do you build a society that's global and focused? What impact can a single university have on a nation? I was intrigued. Up until that point, my career had always been based in New York City, a global capital, and much of my focus had been on the intersection between world-class artists and civic engagement. I was excited by the opportunity to bring my cosmopolitan outlook to a new context and help shape the rapidly expanding creative and cultural center in Abu Dhabi into an epicenter of arts and culture in the Manasseh region. One of the hallmarks of my career has always been a devotion to presenting eclectic work to diverse audiences. I believe that one can present artistically sophisticated programming that simultaneously builds community, brings audiences of all ages, cultures, economic backgrounds, and experience levels together, and expands receptivity to the arts in general. As I proceeded with the detailed interview process, the late Deputy Vice Chancellor Hilary Ballin, may her memory be a blessing, led a process in which I met a broad cross-section of the NYUD community, including then Vice Chancellor Al Bloom, CFO Peter Christensen, Dean of Arts and Humanities Judy Miller, and numerous faculty and staff. Trying to uncover the multiple visions and needs for a new arts center required discussions 
leading to more complex understanding of the promise, potential, and cultural dynamics involved. We discussed the myriad challenges, young infrastructure, attitudes towards public art, and opportunities of the current UAE arts ecosystem, becoming a shape-shifter in a multicultural environment, forging intersections between the performing arts and scholarly research. Even before a single student arrived, a key meeting about the role of public pro programming was with Philip Kennedy and Mills Lewis, then of the NYUD Institute. Originally conceived by founding provost and now vice chancellor, and tonight's moderator, Merritt Wesserman, to connect, to connect the university to the intellectual life of the city. I met with our government partners from Tamkeen. I also met with key members of the UAE artistic community, including the Abu Dhabi Music and Arts Foundation, who I believe are represented here tonight, the, Abu Dhabi, the Art Dubai Fair and the Frig, an independent music venue located at Dubai's Al Zarqal Avenue Cultural District. All of these actors gave me an understanding of the larger artistic sphere within the UAE, the structural realities in which we would be working, and the importance of looking outside the walls of the NYUAD campus for local and national collaborations. With each conversation, my vision broadened and deepened, and I realized that in order to reach its transformative capacity, the Art Center would need to go far beyond simply presenting dance, theater, and performance. More than just a showcase, it would become a cultural reference point. From its conception, the Art Center, like our sibling programs, the NYUAD Institute and the NYUAD Art Gallery, was intended to be a resource for the benefit of the entire public of the UAE. Fast forward a dozen years, and the Art Center has succeeded in supporting the educational mission of the university, fostering research-driven practices and curricular integration, engaging with local, regional, and global art communities, and putting the UAE on the map as a cultural player. Perhaps most importantly, I believe the Art Center has shown the impact of cross-disciplinary thinking that resists the separation between art and life and between art and academia. It has broken traditional barriers between performers and viewers, makers and scholars. It all began with a shared vision, one of a panoramic engagement which would encompass a 360-degree constellation of activities orbiting around the artists at the center. These activities include presenting and developing new work, catalyzing conversations, and inspiring local creators through workshops and guest teaching opportunities by artists. In our vision, artistic practice is as much process as it is product. And it's this spirit of experimentation and iteration that I believe to be one of the legacies of the Art Center. The Art Center has always reflected an enormous collaborative effort, and the book that we celebrate tonight incorporates a polyphonic chorus of voices from many of those who have contributed to its first seven years. Thanks to the expert editorial direction of Nadine Khalil, conceptually, each one of the five chapters focuses on a specific facet of the Art Center's panoramic mandate though you may notice echoes and refrains reverberating through many of the pages. We start with the East Plaza, our first venue, which we began programming in our pilot season in February 2015 after construction delayed the availability of the indoor venues. At the time, questions arose as to how we could activate an outdoor open space in which the separation between viewer and performer was less formal. The East Plaza was the art center's space before we had one and enabled all kinds of unexpected synchronous encounters to occur. In these first ventures, we discovered how important the Art Center was in terms of creating a commons, a meeting place for an audience with extraordinarily diverse backgrounds and experiences. It was during these early days where we also tested other formats that have become the hallmarks of, a cura of our curatorial practice, such as artist welcome dinners, class visits and workshops with musical artists, and events 
such as American Roots rock singer Mary McBride and Kenya's electro disco group Jeff the Band, Puppets, Theater Makers, Phantom Limb, and Imagine Science Film Festival were part of our pilot season. The first indoor venue to open in our inaugural season in September 2016 was the Black Box. And that was the concert version of Toshi Regan's opera Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, then a work in progress, followed by Kronos Quartet. Often described as a laboratory for performance, the Black Box was a flexible layout, adaptable to the changing needs of the artists. In book two, we focus on our initial boundary-pushing experiments. The Black Box is the place where we can incubate new creations, a versatile space in which we've commissioned and developed new works by visiting artists, students, and faculty as co-producers. The responses to the Black Box performances enable us to figure out who our audience might be and how to best serve this extraordinarily diverse mix of experienced and first-time audiencers. On some occasions, I overheard audiences exclaiming enthusiastically, this is the first time I've seen contemporary dance, or I've never been to a theater play before. While at other events, audience members knew exactly what it meant that Salif Keita or Meredith Monk were performing in Abu Dhabi. Oh, I used to work with Ping Chong at La Mama in the East Village in the 70s, said a school teacher to me. From its very beginning, there was a sense that we were offering viewers a mix and caliber of artists and forms that they had not had access to in the UAE before. The third book is named for the Red Theater, which was officially launched in February 2017 with experimental chamber music ensemble, Bang on a Can All-Stars, and contemporary theater troupe, City Company. A striking proscenium theater with a beautiful balance between monumental scale and plush intimacy is arguably the finest performing arts venue in the UAE. When the Red Theater opened, we were enabled to further expand the ambitions of our interdisciplinary programming. Time after time, I sat in the audience and as one master artist after another performed, whether it was during Dennis O'Hare's solo tour de force in Iliad, or Kid Koala's multi-hyphenate, turntables and string quartet, puppet theater, live cinema piece, Newtonian of Fall, I thought, the bar for performing arts in this country has just been raised. And it had been done by an art center that was locally embedded, yet regionally and globally in, global in reach. From its inception, the Arts Center has collaborated closely with NYU Abu Dhabi's academic departments, most notably those in the Arts and Humanities Division, but also with many faculty in the interdisciplinary core curriculum and in the first year writing program. The Blue Hall, our jewel box of a recital hall, is the locus of many of these collaborations, including faculty and student recitals, a contemporary Arab and discussion series, Cinema Na, curated by NYUAD filmmaker and professor Skandakofi, Master classes by artists such as classical pianist Lang Lang, presented in collaboration with ADMAS, and West African superstar Anjali Kijo. The fourth book delves into this significant aspect of our work in art and scholarship, as well as our deep integration with area schools and community groups. Efforts spearheaded, spearheaded by our original director of external relations, Mohamed Al Bakri, and our former director of artistic planning, Nizi Boswick, and continued now by Reem Saleh and Reem Alam. Lana Goliath and Bea Laszlo. When the Art Center opened, a driving question was whether we could attract an audience to an island which was barely on the country's mental map. Just a few years earlier, Sadiat Island was uninhabited with no bridge linking it to the rest of Abu Dhabi. In our fifth season, as the global pandemic of COVID ravaged the world and forced everyone to shelter at home and social distance for the sake of public health, that question needed to change. We began to ask, what can an art center be when you can no longer gather an audience in a specific time and place? In the wake of a global pandemic, how can art be disseminated? 
How can we ensure that we could keep pursuing our artistic, educational, and community missions when the doors to the venues were closed for an indefinite period? How can we reimagine our digital spaces and connectivity to our publics now and in the future? In the fifth book, we look at our rapid response to Movie Arts Central Online, offering an artistic lifeline when people needed art the most. And I especially want to acknowledge Chris Pye and all of our technical staff. We look at how the Art Center entered people's homes via Zoom and social media feeds, on theatrical telephone calls, and 3D audio headphone pieces. And we ponder the next phase of our reopening, where we wondered when we would bring the Art Center back to our audiences live and in person. And thankfully, we're back sharing events in person together as a community. In a way, the book moves from space to non-space, from the particularities of geography and place to the unconfined borderlessness of the internet. And ultimately, we're still grappling with the fundamental question we began with. How can we, make, how can we most effectively make space for the arts in people's lives, not as a luxury, but as part of their everyday habits, and not as something that can be ignored? How can we build a space for interdisciplinary and transcultural collaborations to complement and extend our in-person work? How can the arts create a shared history and common culture in a place as transient and as in much flux as the UAE? What role do the arts have to play in defining the UAE's rapidly changing identity to the rest of the world and to itself? As our community of contributors add their voices to this book, we look back with great appreciation for everybody who contributed to building a significant institution and public resource. But we also recognize that our momentum was interrupted and that the road to rebuilding has been steep. It's our hope that by collecting these essays, photographs, oral histories, and reflections from our first seven years, we'll inspire new levels of commitment, which will continue to intertwine our success with the ambitions of NYU Abu Dhabi and the UAE as a whole. I especially want to thank our director of marketing, Clive Primrose, Harshini, and Kevin, who successfully worked on the, all the intricate work of pulling together the essays, images, and book production, and Rula Hassan, who organized the launch event. And especially, I want to acknowledge Leila Debazi, who has worn so many different hats since the beginning of the Art Center, leading our depe departmental and, our, and artist administration and business activities, and so much more. I leave you with this one-minute uh, one video created by, quite frankly, who also designed the beautiful box set and who are responsible for all the striking design which has helped to define the Art Center. to you, and thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope you enjoy reading 
You can find the book available on sale in the lobby or in Magruder's bookstore. And as of about three hours ago, you can also find it everywhere in the world on Amazon. So thanks for coming. And now I'd like to invite uh, Vice Chancellor Mary Lesserman and our editor, Nadine Salio, and our photographer, Waleed Shah, to join me in the panel. Assalamu alaikum and good evening, everyone. We're so thrilled that you came. Thank you for being here. It's very moving to hear Bill speak just now, read from the book and speak so powerfully to what he has built. Of course, he would have said, as he did, everyone has built it together. It takes a village, a country, an institution, a universe. Before I say anything more, he always exhorts us to, to applaud so many others, and he gives us so many reasons for joy and to applaud all these people he's brought to the Art Center and given to us. Let's us all, for once, give a really, really standing ovation to our beloved Bill, Artistic Director. That was great. Well, I'm very happy to have been asked to moderate uh, this panel. Uh, I'm often asked to do such things, but I'm, and I'm really thrilled at the collaboration with the Institute. Many thanks to Nadia and to Maurice for making that happen. Um, let the fun continue. So I have a little contribution in this beautiful a collection of really what is five books within a beautiful case. And in the very fifth book, towards the end, I write how after seven, and now actually after eight seasons and counting, we truly cannot imagine our beloved Emirate Abu Dhabi or Abu Dhabi or the UAE without the Arts Center at Emirate Abu Dhabi. Our university was envisioned as an institution in and of New York University, in and of Abu Dhabi, and in and of the world, and indeed for the world. And that is what NY Abu Dhabi is today. Now, let's think about that New York part for a moment, and what we were envisioning back in 2007 and have indeed realized. There are many, many reasons, I think, that New York City, one of my homes, is one of the most beloved and energetic urban environments in the world. It's a city that no one forgets who's been there. But I think the reason it's so famous, there are many reasons, as I said, but I think it is the vibrancy of the arts, the utter inextricability and inevitability of the arts in New York City that make that city so indelible on the world stage. And so when we were thinking about NYU Abu Dhabi and what we were going to bring here and what our New Yorkness was going to be in Abu Dhabi and on Sariyad, of course, the arts seemed critical. And indeed, I think it's not too much to say 
And our new president of NYU, Linda Mills, is very focused on this, as she's been telling people this week during her visit here. Of all universities in metropolitan New York, NYU is the only one that truly owns the arts in every sense of the word. It has the Tisch School of the Arts, of course. There is not an Oscars or Grammy or or, or a Tony ceremony without someone from the Tisch School winning something or other. Often they are joined by the Steinhardt School of Education, Culture, and Human Development. And my own beloved Institute of Fine Arts, my alma mater, in my first place where I got to lead a little bit at NYU, uh, is the leading art history and conservation uh, institution in the country, if not the world. And so we really are, NYU is, was, and is, and will be the leading arts university in all these dimensions in the United States. And we wanted to bring that energy and quality to Abu Dhabi because we were very aware that um, the country, and especially this very island, Sadiat, was just then embarking on a major new cultural strategy and transformation. And it has already begun to enrich this society with the major arts venues we've seen, but of course that extends in and to and from Sharjah, Dubai, and the other Emirates. So born of that partnership vision that we were going to put the arts at the center of this institution, I think I'm so very happy that our arts center has become vital and central to this university and to this country and to the wide region. And the same is true for the art gallery in the visual and media arts. And of course, art gallery shares with the art center the product space, where so many of our faculty and emerging artist activities from the UAE are showcased in many exhibitions every year. In this cosmopolitan country, the art center does something more than just give us great art. It also generates discussions about ideas like home, identity, migration, transience, belonging, and global challenges to our shared humanity. I'm especially pleased that as we walked in, we saw that extraordinary video record generated spontaneously almost by um, uh, Larson's extraordinary Holocene's uh, performance. And I'm very happy that happened because this very week, as you'll remember on Monday, we unveiled and launched our very concrete and ambitious climate action plan. And again, the Art Center from the very beginning has been a part of this conversation, this very important conversation. Now, many of our community members, both within the university and well beyond, experience the kinds of art, the leading edge kinds of art, that the Art Center is so famous for, for the first time let alone the conversations, the residencies, the artist meals when the artists and residents come. They, they experience this for the first time and they often really take to it and come back. They come back for more. There's a high repeat performance. Families come, all sorts of people come. It's really amazing to see who enters the art center. And all this creative engagement happens in the context of our great university. And so what we get to see and experience in the Arts Plaza just outside and in the three theaters just across the way and in the product space is global, local, and above all, a beautiful, beautiful projection of human creativity and care. 
and that's true for the art center, very much in the, uh, through the arts and through aesthetic means, but it's true, you could say it for our university as a whole, which is what I love about it. And so now we're going to have a nice conversation to celebrate the arrival of this great book. Let me say something about our wonderful panelists. First, of course, uh, the man who needs an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Bill Bragan, the first and founding executive artistic director of the Art Center at New York University Abu Dhabi. Bill, you told so wonderfully the story of the, your rapid fire, actually, between from February to May, I think it went. And I think I first met you, although your fame preceded you in New York, I was here for the first commencement. And there you were. We took a special tour of the Art Center and Hillary Ballon, the deputy director, kept telling me, you've got to tell him to come. You've got you to gotta meet Lisa, his wife. She's in philanthropy. I was in philanthropy at the time. You've got to tell him to come. So I'm glad it worked out. Um, the National, our beloved newspaper in the country, has called him a game changer. And that is exactly what he has been in the UAE since 2015 when he launched and led the center's very first season. It sort of was hoped that we would have started a year earlier, but there were some challenges with the real estate that you fixed uh, that first year. In 2018 and in 2019, the Art Center won the Pride of Abu Dhabi Award, and Bill has twice been a finalist for Abu Dhabi Amcham's Falcon Individual Award for Excellence. I'm counting on three being a charm. Bragan is such a force in the world outside Abu Dhabi. We forget it, but he was a very beloved and accomplished leader at Lincoln Center and at uh, Joe's Pub in, uh, in, in uh, New York at the Public Theater, major venues. That's where he learned the world. He learned the world of art in New York, and he brought also much of it to New York, and that's what he's brought to us. So he's also the co-founder of the World Music Festival and a service organization, a non-profit entity called Global Fest. And Global Fest um, is the winner in 2018 of the William Dawson Award for Programmatic Excellence and Sustained Achievement. Actually, that's Billy, that's you yourself rather than Global Fest, but Global Fest is a part of it. He won that award from the Association of Performing Arts Professionals very significant because those are his peers. Peers are not always kind to their peers, but they are they recognize their quality. And one fun fact that you may not know, but stay tuned, Bill has another identity. Uh, he is also known as Acidophilus, and Acidophilus is his uh, handle when he DJs as part of Globe Sonic Sound System, an international uh, DJing um, uh, compact, and I think that's significant because those of you who come to events in the, in the Arts Plaza in particular know that you have a special love of DJs and you really support the DJ culture in the UAE. Next to Bill is Nadine Khalil, and Nadine is an arts writer, independent, an editor, uh, an arts researcher, and also a very fine curator. And at the moment in her research, she's studying the body as an expanded site of performance, so relevant to the Art Center, I think, a site of performance of labor and resistance. She is the former editor of Canvas for four years, which is the Dubai-based contemporary art magazine you probably know, 
And before then, she was very involved as editor of uh, the urban culture magazines AMAG and Bespoke, which are both based in Beirut. And after a decade or more in art publishing, Khalil now advises art institutions and nonprofits like ours on editorial strategy, content development, and publications. Welcome. And then, last but certainly not least, at the other end of this stage, Walid Shah. Walid Shah was born and raised in the UAE. He was educated as a chemical engineer. So was my father, and my father was a good singer, too. Um, he was educated as a chemical engineer, and he started his career working in the oil industry. But at some point along the way, he repented. He repented because he had slowly been discovering his love of photography. And today, he is a full-time photographer, creative thinker, and entrepreneur. And I'll just mentioned a couple of his projects. In one of his recent works, which is a wonderful book, Walid explores the intersection between physical and mental health through portraits and stories. Nothing could be more important in this moment than these moments we've had during and after the pandemic, these moments of climate challenge and other challenges. In another project, which is titled Magazine Cover, he examines societal norms and their relation to images. Magazine covers matter. And Valid has also shot portraits of freelancers and entrepreneurs, people we need in our creative economy so very much. And he did that to help them navigate uh, the economic downturn propelled by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still not quite out of it. So thank you for all of that, and welcome to you as well. Okay, I have some questions. I hope we'll have some time with the audience as well. I'm going to bounce them around a little bit. Let's start with Bill. Bill, congratulations on a wonderful milestone. Just say a little bit after reading from the book, as you did, what does today's book launch means, mean to you? I think the book launch really is sort of a culmination. Uh, it's actually, there was an article that came out in Magpie today, and they, they said it's telling the story so far. And I think that's what we really wanted to do, is we wanted to, um, we wanted to, capture some of the different things that the art center means to so many different people and there are so many different stories and different ways that people engage with us uh, and we wanted to tell the story in as close to real time as we could uh, I, i've been describing as we wanted to leave some breadcrumbs for future historians because the thing that attracted me here to the uae was to be part of the sadia project as it's developing and it's really unprecedented to see this rate of change in growth, and we didn't want to leave it to just a rearview mirror. So we really wanted to capture that uh, and just put it all together in one place so that people could enjoy uh, understanding the magnitude of sort of the reach and all of the, the different people who played a role in it. That's a wonderful, um, wonderful motivation, and I think having spent time with the book, I think it really does that. Um, you gave us, you walked us through the book and the content. You see it there. Uh, fair warning, it's it's heavy when you pick it up. You know, it's the door stop basically. Um, tell us a little bit more about the structure. Why five volumes? Five volumes, I think, first and foremost, came from uh, the fact that the folder that it's in in my in my 
uh, inbox right now is still referred to as a fifth year anniversary book. Uh, and so that was part of the idea was uh, that we had hoped it would be celebrating five years. We're now in our ninth season uh, because things take time. Uh, and then we started really thinking about the venue, and that's when we started working with Nandine as the, as the editor. We started talking about different conceptual models, and that, I think, was part of the exchange and what it meant for us to have somebody like her who's been so present in our audiences and wrote, well, the reason we reached out is she wrote some of my favorite pieces on some of our other performances. And then the, the sort of the conceit of using the venues uh, really just, that started to feel self-evident. And then as what is the fifth chapter where we were in the middle of a pandemic when we were working on it. And that's when all of these really existential questions about well, what does our work mean right now and how do we keep going on? And most of the time we made the book, we had no idea when we were going to be back together again. And so we also wanted to, I think, capture that moment. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. Uh, and I must say, as an art historian, I love the visuals because I know I wanted to look some, up something about the black box, and I picked up the black box. And then for the blue hole, there was the blue box and so forth. So this is, this is very well done. Um, and thank you for reminding us of the fact that this project had its, its genesis essentially during COVID or just before had to be moved forward. And I think we can never forget that role of the Art Center during the pandemic when you were just this great online site of hope. I remember making that hard decision in March when I had to tell you to tell someone to leave the airport and go back home because they couldn't come. They came a couple of years later, but uh, you took it online and within six months we were one of the 15 most popular venues to go to online as an armchair traveler. Forbes had designated us that. So really your nimbleness and the ability to pivot is, was, was really remarkable. But I'm very grateful that we're able to have an in-person event for an in-person book. Nadine, let me talk to you, to, to turn to you. You, as, a, as an arts editor of these magazines and a critic, obviously you've been following the Arts Center very closely from the beginning. What would you say the center has contributed to the creative scene in the UAE and perhaps the region? I think it's really broadened the idea of performance, um, moving from dance to more contemporary conceptual performances. I think the one that I that I still remember is Lucinda Cloud, seeing her live in person, working with this older video simultaneously, and you know referencing Saul Lewitt and all these other pioneers in the performance art scene that a lot of us have been inspired by, and I think. That moment is very key for me because it also reflects the performativity of the book itself. The book was a performance. It was also a performance um, for me personally, working with people who are not necessarily writers, also working with artists like Harshini and Kevin who are a strong part of the team and really made everything happen and they were in the theater with the performance. They're artists in their own right as well. So. It was a very interesting way for me to also step outside my own comfort zone, so it almost felt like my own personal performance because I had to figure out a way to make this polyvocal while remaining true to the writer's voice, which you definitely do not do in editing. Editing is much more harsh. It can be very rigorous. And sometimes
is it just to start with something? And I've been on both sides. I'm an independent writer now, but I've also been an editor for 10 years. I've been writing for 20 years, publishing for 20 years. So there are those moments where I will let go of a piece and let the editor have it. And then it's a back and forth with an editor that sometimes can be extremely painful because that one experience that you had while seeing your show or watching a performance gets completely changed at the end if it's not clear to the reader. So I try to do the other thing, try and work in a way that was accessible, legible, but also try to retain some of those voices, which was really Bill's vision to kind of bring this communal aspect, um, this hybrid form of text, I guess you could say, that had a little bit of my guidance, but really stayed true to the authenticity of those who were speaking. I really do think it's a book to be spoken rather than one to be read, which was also interesting when we talk about releasing the book in chapters that are essentially spaces. So what is the space for text? It can be seen as an oral space, and I think this is what the book does. I love your description of the editorial process and the relationship between the editor and the author. I have been both an editor and an author, and especially in, in both situations, I often thought the editor is often the enemy and the editor is often the savior. And uh, good editors really help birth uh, creative ideas and translate them the way an artistic producer does. So I'm very interested in your view of the editing of the book as a performance for you. Just to make that maybe a little bit more accessible to the audience, can you quickly give us an overview of what people should expect when they pick up a copy, start looking through it? How would you hope that they, they process it, they engage with it? Well, for one, it's not chronological, so you can uh, pick up at any point in time. Um, expect to find a literary or literature professor like Brian Waterman talk about disco and his experiences on the dance floor, but then at the same time make an analogy about, you know, these spaces of dance, uh, art centers, early days being like a circulatory system. So then he actually does put a little bit of analysis in. That's like in the very beginning. Then you also have like Ruben Polando, who runs his own theater group, and you know Deborah Levine talk about the early days. I think it's interesting to look at a book that's so spatially um, choreographed, and yet you know you have a lot of stories about the before there was all these spaces. You know, all these spaces existed, so it was like the outdoor part of the East Plaza before I even got here. And then, you know, you end, I think the ending is just so beautiful because it's really the beginning. It's um, Co Skip uh, Sherry and Coco Carroll literally, you know, producing or performing their libretto that was an oral piece or an online piece on the page. So it's all about rhythm and how the how the words are placed and what are the spaces in between the words. And that was the most interesting for me, I think, as an art critic. Yeah, so that's kind of the breadth of things. It's wonderful. Um, and I think, yeah, that dynamic sense uh, you really do get. Um, Waleed, let me... Nadine just said she, she wished that the, the book is not there just to be read, but actually to be spoken. It's probably also to be watched <laughs> and to be looked at. The book would not have been possible or the same kind of uh, performative project 
without your beautiful visual archive of photos of art center performances over time. Uh, how do you see the relationship between photography and documenting a history, which is really what you've done here? How do I think about images in relation to that storytelling that Nadine has organized? I think I think they sort of go hand in hand, right? I think you need the visual now, especially with with um, you know with screens and phones, and you, you you need that visual before you could have you know maybe gotten away with with writing only, but now you really need that visual to to show people what happened, what it looked like, to to you know maybe in be able to invite more people later on in the next seasons and more artists to come and and, and see the show. So the, I think the visual documentation is goes hand in hand with the. Uh, with the words. I think that's true. I always think it must be so hard to document these arts productions while they are in motion. In photography, it's one thing to do it in video, which is hard enough. Uh, can you tell us something, you, know, you shoot in a variety of contexts as a professional photographer. You portray individual people, you do commercial work, you do live events such as your work in this book. And so when you're photographing performance, what do you look for in a shot? And then once you've got a whole bunch of photographs, what elevators felt to be right for the book? And how did you work with Nadine on that? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think we worked directly together. You know, we, I think I had the archive with, uh, with NYU and that was sent over. But funny enough, I was, I was speaking with, I think Peter was in the audience just now, I was talking exactly about that, like what, what do you look for in a shot? And it's, it's really context, right? And it's, it's context of what the performance is and looks like and what, what it's about and what the performers are doing physically. But in the context of, of the venue, the place, the art center, the audience, what the audience is doing as well. Uh, if you see, there's a lot of you know, generally like, you know, wide shots that show the audience as well and the art center. So I think documenting history is about context and not just the aesthetic of the, of the, um, of the piece. If I may add, yeah. we made a very deliberate decision for the visuals to create their own narrative to supplement the text. And so it's not literal. And also we have three artists working on the visuals, right? So Hashim, Kevin, and so, you know, so there's this also theatrical element to the images where it wasn't always necessarily directly linked to exactly what the text was saying. So it was really more about these key moments and it wasn't like a direct kind of link. So it's also a bit creative in this case. I think it's an excellent point of very telling when you go through the book and I'm very glad you, the two of you drew that out. They are but independent and related ways of telling the story. And the, unlike so many other books that you might think of or magazines, the photographs are not illustrations. The photographs are works of art in their own right and other ways of experiencing are what I think the, the magic of the arts, art center. Thank you. Just really quickly, can you say maybe, I know there wouldn't be one favorite moment to document, but are there some, some things that really stood out for you in the document of the art center where you thought, I would never get to do this anywhere else? Yeah, I, I, I think there's one. I know, the, I know the one, and I think you know the one as well. So it's, it's that, that, that shot of uh, Huey Ellis. And for me, that shot is, um, is uh, it's sort of this full circle of really my own life where, you know, growing up in the UAE, um, uh, you know, being born and raised here, 
uh, different music growing up. You know, my father was in the, he's in the audience as well. Like James Brown was 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 a was a staple in the house. And having Pee Wee Ellis, you know, James Brown's sax player, be in Abu Dhabi was huge. And not just that, when, you know, it was his 80th, 80th birthday, someone came and brought a cake on stage, and then someone placed a Hamdaniya, which is the, the, the UAE's national headdress, on Pee Wee Ellis in Abu Dhabi. I, I, and that just came full circle. I, I, there's nowhere in the world where that would happen. That shot does not happen anywhere in the world anywhere except that moment. So yes, that one shot is is the one for me. And you nailed it. Yeah, yeah you really you. did. It's great. Um, Bill, uh, in the storytelling, working with Nadine on this, you commissioned a very interesting group of people to write some of the book's essays. Uh, maybe can you say something about how you went about selecting um, of course, all of them are terrific, so you don't have to single anyone out, but you could if you wanted to. But how did you go about it? Because that's a lot of numbers that we just saw, on numbers of performances, commissions, artists. Tell us about that process. I think the, the hardest part, in, in my, my general curatorial approach, I don't think this will be a surprise, but I sort of operate with an aesthetic of abundance. I like... I like a, a very large concentration of information and shows, of ideas and voices. You sort of noticed that about you. Yeah, I know. Uh, and so the hardest part for me is actually, like, what are you going to leave out? And who has an equally incredible story that, that should also be told? And how many different points of view there are? But there were certain people who were really, really present, who were incredible champions from the very beginning. There were certain people who just captured certain moments. And then as, I think as we defined what the conceptual conceit was, it sort of suggested different things. So there are projects, Brian Waterman, for example, who is uh, who wrote uh, in the first book, Are You Ready to Disco? He ran the core curriculum here. He was a literature professor in art history. Uh, but I met him on Twitter before I even got here, and I looked at his bio, and he had written a book about the band television. So it was 33 and a third. And so we, he was probably my first friend at the university, and we bonded over our love for music. Uh, we collaborated on the first show in our pilot season with Mary McBride. He had gotten a grant from the U.S. Embassy. And so really my entire time here and what it would mean for me to collaborate with faculty members on all the different levels of intellectual and personal and artistic passions. Like, I knew Brian had to be there. Uh, the Cuban Halimi Project, when I think about our signature programs, and in the same way, I think as Walid was talking about Pee Wee Ellis here, the projects that could only be born here, like I knew that the Cuban Halimi Project needed to be represented, and Hazem Lefi, who was a kind of a central part of that, and now teaching here, like I knew he needed to be there. But there were, there were critics like, uh, like Rob Garrett, who was at the National, who used to come to everything, and he wrote so beautifully. So we knew we needed him, but there were also there were students who were also really part of our life. And then, and then I just thought, all right, someone's going to be mad at me that I didn't ask. Yeah. Well, I think it's a wonderful mosaic of, of voices, and indeed it was an honor for many to contribute. But uh, both, uh, both you and Nadine have mentioned quite a few of the authors are faculty here, and I think that's a wonderful 
special thing about a university-based art center that is both a total resource and translational venue to the community and back and takes back in and, and at the same time really makes our wonderful community of you know several thousand students often get exposed to the arts seriously for the first time. It's really a very special thing. Uh, Nadine, another question for you. Um, of course, this is still an evolving art scene in the UAE. And I'm sure as a critic based in Beirut and other international venues, you that you are still aware of various gaps in the performing arts scene. Do you have a sense of how the art center, how does it fit in closing some of those gaps? And of course, feel free to tell us what more we might do, because Bill will go and do it if you say it. Yeah, that's a bit of a tricky question. <laughs> but um, I think what I'm seeing here, um, and it's obviously very different in a place like Beirut or other, other places that I've experienced, is the art scene takes place in silos. Um, so you have, if you want to see performance, you come here. If you want a very discursive, critically engaging biennial, you go to Sarja. If you want uh, established galleries, you go to Dubai. Now, obviously, the foundation, like Jamir Art Center and Asuka Arts Foundation, they're doing um, their own thing. But I think you rarely see uh, viewers, including me, mixing, you know, across different venues. Like, it's highly specialized. In a way, that's very American, too. Um, but I guess in other places in the region where there are less resources, um, it is much more communal. So NYU may be communal. People do come here, but it's very much community-driven in the immediate environs, right? And so, you know, there is obviously the separation between the three Emirates. Many art critics have spoken about that. There's, a, there's definitely gaps between that. And I think I would like to see more collab collaborative models between the institutions across the Emirates. Because I always have to swip code switch when I go somewhere. I know what I'm going to get in some ways. And I think that's what's a bit lacking here compared to other spaces that in the world that maybe also allow for the non-institutional grassroots events to take place within the institution. So takeovers, you know, I'm sure there's more here. I also, to be honest, I don't come so often to Abu Dhabi, but, you know, the, I, I also know that if I want a really spectacular, engaging performance, I can come here, even also really conceptual, maybe unsettling one as well. So I would come here only for performance. I would love to see performance in other spaces as well that are, you know, that, that are not just staged, you know. So that's, that's my two cents. Well, that is very interesting and generative thinking. And Bill, how would you react to it? But how about uh, Abu Dhabi takes the art center? What do you think about that? Or yeah. Sharjah takes the art center? Well, I, I, we haven't announced it yet, but we are actually bringing one of our shows in November. We're bringing it to Russell Haima and working with the Al-Qasimik Foundation. That's part of the collaboration with the U.S. Embassy. Uh, so I think that kind of thinking is very much part of our thinking. Uh, 
And also, I think the way this book was very much an outgrowth of the pandemic. One of the other outgrowths of the pandemic that's not in the book, but is very much in our in our practice. Uh, Maya Allison, who runs the NYU the Art Gallery, and I, and Lindsay Bostrup, who used to work with me, we co-founded a convening of cultural leaders across the country for exactly that reason. So it was performing arts, visual arts and museums, cinema, uh, some independent curators and promoters, all meeting regularly, originally every two weeks on, on Zoom, just to check in how you're doing, what are you doing, how are you getting through this personally, what are you, how are you responding professionally. And as people started moving back in person, this network has continued with monthly meetings so that we can really, I think, as a sector, think about exactly those things. How can we, how can we collaborate? How can we cross-pollinate? How can we develop local artists and think on a national scale and not just on an emirate or just one scale? So I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think there are a lot of people who are in active conversation. And even for me at the beginning, the fact that Antonio Carver, now of Jamil Art Center, at the time at Art Dubai, was part of my interview process. So that kind of conversation, I think when NYU was, was bringing me here, they were trying to spark that kind of, uh, that kind of lateral thinking. Well, you found a lot of the people, let me say that. Those are our ideas, for sure, but we find, you found a lot of people. Let's, let's uh, paradoxically go online for a little bit. Um, Walid, back to you. Um, you and I share a deep love of Instagram. I still believe in it after all this time. There's too many ads, but other than that. Um, and you're very active, I've uh, seen your feed. Your feed is just much better than mine. So let me ask you this question. How do digital trick bites um, relate to traditional print photography, and uh, if, if at all? And what I really mean to ask, I suppose, is, uh, is anything that's produced and posted on Instagram art at all? That's a really good question. I think um, I think the way the way people use Instagram, the way artists use Instagram uh, now is, hey, look at look at this. This is where you can find my art. So usually, yes, the art piece would 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 be posted on online, but I think the the, the art itself has to be seen somewhere else. You know, come to the show, uh, come see the, buy this print. Uh, when you look at talking about print, come look at this. Uh, 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 exhibition, uh, this piece, this sculpture. I think that's that's what's happening. Go listen to this piece of music on Spotify. You know, it's it's. I think it's like it's it's more of that than you know looking at the Instagram post itself as art. Do you ever see something on Instagram where you say, or do you yourself try sometimes to mm -hmm. put things out? I think a lot of your content does look very like art to me. But do you? How do you think about your own feed? Uh, it's changed over over the years. Um, before, you know, I used to really curate my feed, uh, but now it's it's you know almost like whatever works. Let's try this. Let's try that. And it's more of uh, you know trying to, to to engage and 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 you know talk to whoever is out there and see what you know what we can bring or how to bring these people to an event or to a show uh, rather than just entertain online. 
So you want to recommend on the second? Let's yeah, I just, what's interesting is Walid was a very early and very ardent uh, champion of NFTs. And you know, when, he, when he kind of collected the Pee Wee Ellis image, that's one that he's actually minted as an, as an NFT. Uh, so it's, it's interesting for you to not include because he's actually been such a, such a proselytizer in the sort of digital space as a, as a home for your artwork. Yeah, it's 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 because the, the question was was Instagram, right? So so again, Instagram is you know social media. Somebody else owns that platform. When you go after Web three and NFTs, yes, you own your piece and the provenance is there. So you know when you post, let's let's say exactly this example, the the image of Pee Wee Ellis gets posted on online on Instagram or or any any social media. It's like hey, go to Foundation, go to Super Rare and buy it from there. So the, 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 the art piece is somewhere else. It's a marketing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a marketing advertising yeah. tool, yeah. yeah. Too bad. It was so hopeful. You know, for a while there, we all thought we were artists on Instagram. Now, I, I was aware that you make NFTs or you've been actively involved, and I think it's, it's quite interesting to think about that particular work being an NFT. Two years ago, we were talking about NFTs all the time. It looked like NFTs were going to take over the world and change everything. You don't hear quite as much about the phenomenon today. Was it a passing fad? I had no idea this conversation was going there. <laughs> Since you're here, you know, we're performing. It's a performance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, 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 hope, I hope it comes back. I think we're, we're, we're all feeling a little bit uh, down with, uh, with what's happening in the crypto and NFT world. But, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, the, the tech works. Uh, so, you know, I think everybody's looking at different ways to make the tech work and uh, talk less about the tech and, and, and do more with the tech without people having to know what the tech is. Such a good point. I, I think the thing, the reason for the optimism, among many other reasons, and I know Harshani has actually been very involved in that space as well, is the democratization and the access to audiences and the idea that NFTs are a place to break down barriers. So I think that, to me, a lot of the excitement that came with that was that sense of how can you navigate uh, around gatekeepers and, and bring an artist in kind of into the world in connection with an audience in a different way. Yeah, ownership in particular of intellectual and creative property. Nadine was sort of looking at me a little scared. Do you want to weigh in on NFTs before I bring it back to your It's probably better we don't get into this discussion right now. I have a lot of thoughts. But I think um, a lot of NFTs will not and have not been taken seriously by contemporary art critics. So there, there is an issue there. So they might have democratized um, the way things happen and ownership and, you know, all this. But the problem is that their work, we need to look at their work, you know, and I'm sure you understand this as an art historian, which I am not. But anything and everything can be an NFT. And unfortunately, the art world is all about the rarefied object. And so, you know, now the crash that happened is financial, and that's not really linked. But I think a lot of art critics have been grappling with this. Like, you still need to say this work can be considered good by a certain group of people who are the gatekeepers, who are still important, you know, or bad. And so with NFTs, I think the problem started when it was traditional, when if it was not an NFT, 
it was a traditional art world object, you know, which in fact there's a lot in the art world that's not traditional, you know, but then there was this separation. And so I think that's, that's the issue there for me, at least conceptually. I think the monkeys ruined it. I really do. Um, let's let's bring it back to the art center. Thank you for this. It just knowing that Lalit has been so active in this space, it was just a great opportunity to show that conversations happen and are generated by artists on this stage, by artists and critics. And you really, you just, three of you got us going. Let me before I opening up to the to the audience, uh, the community here, Bill, looking. Thinking back now at seven years, so the end of this period, uh, any lessons learned that you would like to share that really help people understand something about what it takes to build an arts community in a place where there, on Saliot, where there wasn't one? I think the first part is that it's, it's a multi-directional conversation always, and I think even in my bio, when the room you sort of threw in the, the tidbit about the fact that I DJed, uh, when you're a DJ, you're not just playing records for yourself. You're playing DJs for the dance floor, and you, you play a song, and you see if people respond, you see what fills the floor, gets people dancing, you see what clears the floor, and you're constantly adjusting, and you're adjusting not based on a single person, but really on the sort of communal response. And so I think one thing that I learned in coming here to a place that I never lived before, and one of the most uh, one of the most unique communities that can be, because people are coming from so many different places with so many different levels of experience, is to really be in that constant dialogue. So that for me was a huge lesson about about constantly being open to the feedback and then and then and making adjustments. And I think the other thing that I really learned is about uh, the strength of the team and the strength of people who really share a mission. I, you know, when you talked about how quickly we were able to make the shift to online and do that, we were able to do that because every single person in the team believed that what we were doing was important, believed that not only was it important, but it was absolutely essential at that moment in history and was willing to do whatever it takes. And we were all inventing it on the spot. We had no idea what we were doing when we started the piece with Skip and Coco that, that Nadine was talking about. We knew he had an in-person choral piece where the audience would walk through people who were singing notes back to each other. It was probably the most inappropriate form of art to think about in the middle of a pandemic. And it was scheduled for April 2020. But we decided we needed to at least uh, have the interviews with the subjects whose interviews became the libretto and just capture that moment. And we had no idea what we were going to do with it. And then Susan, who was pictured in one of the photographs, came up with this idea of using 3D specialized audio. And all of a sudden, we had a, we had a tool. And we made, I think, an extraordinary work of art, not because we had plans to, but we, we had the, the sort of the shared mission and the shared tolerance for risk and for the possibility of failure. And I think all of those things were really, uh, were a super important lesson. And, and I think the lesson that people really did need us, that it, this is not just a night out of entertainment, but what we're doing is a little bit more. The arts are essential to human flourishing. I absolutely believe that. Um, great conversation. I, we want to open it up to all of you. 
And uh, there are two mics to the sides, and if it's not easy for you to move to them, I'm sure someone will bring a mic to you. Um, please, when you're, if you'd like to make a comment or a stated question, please let us know who you are. Um, the floor is yours, everyone's. And we're all teachers here, so we're very patient. Okay, please in the front. No, for, for the video archive, actually, it would be great if you could grab a mic. Yeah, the mics are to the side, so it's helpful if people want to queue up there. That Well, actually, thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. So if people want to queue up at various mics, that's also okay. Yes. Congratulations on the book. And... Um, uh, I am sure the book captured one of the most important elements uh, that I have, and I know many others have been connected with. Uh, uh, to the art center, or with the art center, I graduated uh, from the U.S., where I've become an artist in 2004. <coughs> Came here, I looked everywhere in Abu Dhabi for a platform to learn and make friends and, and play. So I met a gentleman, his name is Sultan Al-Khatib. He said, um, in the Cultural Foundation, he said, I will give you a stage, but you must switch to classical music. And that took years to, to do. But then, in two or three years, and when I came back to show him that I can play, I don't know, Mozart or something. I play by ear. I don't read notes. I never wanted to. Uh, he was gone. The fact that the art center is permanent was one of the most amazing gifts, uh, knowing that I can always come here and meet artists and, and your shows. And that was the first thing I asked Bill. Uh, I said, Bill, how long will you be here for? Um, he said, don't worry. I'll always be here. And my music developed and many things developed. And I owe it all to the Art Center and particularly to Bill Bregan. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your story. This is a hard act to follow, I realize. But please, others, comments, questions, curiosity, please, yep. Please go to the mic, yep or wait for the mic to come to you. We're recording, that's why it is just the way everyone can hear you. Congratulations on the book. I have witnessed many of the evolution of the Arts Center, and I look forward to viewing the, the chronicalization of my personal experience. My question really, and I'm still forming in my head how I want to phrase this, but it has to do with the financial contribution of the Art Center. And I'm 
wondering if the art center's future may be at risk if there is no financial support from the outside. Bill's looking to me. <laughs> I'm just a moderator here. <laughs> Thank you. You know, as you know, the art center, um, I think since you clearly have a long history with the Art Center, and thank you for the comment. Uh, before the pandemic, we had a very lively membership program and, of course, also sell tickets, which brings significant income. And we also have significant outside contributions. Bill mentioned some of our beloved sponsors. One of the most amazing sponsors who's come in well, who's been there almost all along has been Mobadla, and they continue to do that year on year. Uh, the U.S. Embassy loves us. They're not expecting us to show American artists per se. They just li like us as an American institution projecting this worldly quality of art. So they are very supportive of a lot of our initiatives. And one of the most amazing new supporters is from Clave and Arpels for dance, for dance reflections, which I hope you've seen some of those programs. They came in even during the pandemic. They said, we're going to start kicking this in. We want you to be part of our global program of supporting dance. Uh, Mr. Arpels of Van Cleef and Arpels in the 1940s and 50s had a deep relationship to dance. So this is really authentic. It's, they're not just trying to sell their jewels. They really are part of the history of Balanchine and the history of ballet and dance in the United States. And around the world. So I think there's a lot of room to grow there. And because I was a card carrying member with my husband, I've been encouraging Bill to bring back the membership program. So how about it? So thank you for that. And thank you for that, Kathy. Kathy is one of our very loyal uh, advisory circle members. Uh, and I think it's really important. First, the membership program will come back. We're in the process. One of the casualties of, uh, of the pandemic was our box office company or box office provider. So we've been working with a kind of temporary situation and we're in the process of bringing in a new box office that will allow us to bring it back. So there, there was a lot of behind the scenes fallout of the pandemic structurally within the performing arts. So absolutely, because we know in the in the programming that we do, which isn't familiar, the sort of the trust that we built with the audiences and that sort of the sense of membership so that you can come and remove the barriers was really important. Uh, the other thing that's really important in that as well is the idea, which is newer here but is known, I think, in a lot of other performing arts centers around the world, is that ticket sales and membership only ever cover a fraction of the cost of doing what we're doing. For if you look at the intimacy of our venues, uh, there would be no way to actually fund it on ticket sales unless we charged exorbitant amounts of money for the tickets. And part of, I think, what I've been talking before about the access is our first two seasons, all of our tickets were free for everybody. And it gave people a chance to go outside their comfort zone for us to build that trust, build a track record, and have people come. And then we started introducing ticket prices for certain events, but we intentionally try to keep them low because we don't want there to be that barrier and that friction. And we want people to say, all right, I have no idea. I can't even understand what they're trying to say in the description, but they haven't steered me wrong before or not too often, so let them come out. And I think that that relationship and the the expansion of our of our partners, our partnerships with the business community and with embassies and with individuals is a really key part of how 
we can keep the barriers out of out of the way. I think that's all great, and I think we should talk to Walid about some NFTs. <laughs> Surely there are investment opportunities. They're, great. they're called, called pull-ups. <laughs> the, the ones the ones you get when you show up to something pull-ups. Do the pull-ups though. Yeah. It's time to invent something new. Clearly, thank you for a great comment, Kathy. Others, please. Questions, um, comments. Hi, I'm Yvette Campbell, and I'm part of the advisory circle. I'm also um, probably came in around the same time that Bill Bregan did in 2015. I'm actually interested in how you might think about continuing the online performance. I was blown away by Toshi Regan's performance. I turned it on my television set. It actually was in my living room as large as possible. And I was blown away. It was intimate. It was beautiful. And and I think there's something about that, bringing the art center to the world instead of only on Fabiat. How do we um, sort of continue book number five into the future? Yeah, I think that was one of the one of the amazing discoveries was that, especially early in the pandemic, the online programs and what we did, I think everything that we're talking about here is the importance of archive, and we have been archiving our performances from the very beginning of the Art Center with the knowledge that we were building this history. And so uh, within three weeks after the, after the lockdown, we were dipping back into the archive, bringing these past shows out, uh, but having the artists join in real time, watching along with the viewers, so that they were, we were also commenting on the on the on the current moment, and it was also, frankly, it was a way to channel money to artists who, in the space of about two weeks, almost every single performer I know who made their living working in a live context watched one to two years worth of income collapse. So there was a lot of reasons to do it, but especially when we got Tochi Regan, when we got her to agree to let us show the concert version of our very first show, uh, she challenged us and she said, I'll let you do it, but every other institution that's been part of the Parable Path, that's been part of Parable to Soul, we want you to invite them too. And so then we reached out to the Singapore International Festival and CAP UCLA and North Carolina, Carolina uh, Performing Arts and we scheduled it so we had literally thousands of people watching in real time, chatting with Toshi, singing along through the chat boxes, and there was this amazing communal moment, and it's that sense of community that is what inspires me with live performance. I do think there was a moment where people got really, really tired of being in front of their screens, and it went, and it sort of, and it sort of went away, and we were really glad to be back in person. But there were so many new audience members that we got in touch with. We had video performances from the Art Center that were picked by the New York Times as the jazz pick of the week. In New York was actually a concert from Abu Dhabi. So it was really that the access for people who have mobility issues, accessibility issues, there's so much benefit. And I think now that we're back in person fully, I think building on that sort of equilibrium to be able to continue to extend the work is something we're absolutely thinking about. Wonderful suggestion. Yes. Hello, I'm Rashika. I'm an artist in Abu Dhabi. And uh, congratulations on this journey. And uh, I've not seen the book, but I have a question. Uh, um, is when you document uh, any history, you make some choices. So how was that process of making choices 
and then presenting it by the book. And uh, did you have to compromise on certain things to make those choices is what my question is. And if you think that this doesn't make sense because I'm not going through the book, so just ignore it. But if it's you can, please do. It's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. Thank you very much. And I think maybe we go to Nadine first on that. It's interesting because I was just thinking as you were asking the question how sometimes a story is so much more powerful um, for what it doesn't say than what it does say. Like when, you know, when you get a submission and it's like overly descriptive and it takes away from the power of the piece. I think in a way what this book has done, and of course I can't take credit for the selection at all because that was totally Bill. Um, but basically what we try to do, at least with the writers, is reference other people involved, other performances, just by referencing them. It's kind of like a citation, you know, a series of citations that allows you to build the puzzle that is the picture, you know. And again, this idea of documentation is really, really interesting today. It's a key topic in terms of performance, in terms of collecting museums, museums that collect performances. How do they collect the performance? They either collect the instructions of the performance as per the artist's um, wishes, you know, or s significations, or they collect the document, the visual document, the filming of the performance. That's the record. And we have a fantastic contribution by Melissa Grunman specifically speaking of this. And that's why when I mentioned Lucinda Charles, because she's referencing an older performance that, you know, she did decades before live. And so that was an extremely powerful moment for me to experience. But I really do think it's sad. I mean, you know, of course, at the end of the day, you, you're limited by time, by those who are willing and able to do it, but also which voices need to come to the fore that then empower and enable other voices. It doesn't always matter who is speaking when it's a group, you know, when you're talking about a whole community. So we, I really try to look at this in a very different way than I do in my regular life, which is always about the individual author, uh, the critic who comes, assesses, and leaves and doesn't speak to anyone. In most cases, you try not to really get influenced by the curator or by the artist or anyone. You just go and you make your judgment based on your experience. That's really the real hardcore art criticism the way it used to be in the past. And so in this case, it was very different, right? It was it was people speaking to each other through their texts, I guess. Yeah. And I think in the, in the process of making it, you know, we made lists of all the shows, and I think a lot of people on staff, and Harshani was really key in this, in this early phase, sort of made lists of what we thought would be essential. And of course, my response was, well, we have to talk about all of them, right? I like every single, every single program that we've done, I still have a deep memory of why we chose that program to be part of our season and what it meant and, and had hints of the, of the stories, and we knew that would be impossible. Uh, and so there are, you know, there are certain productions that are just represented by a photo, so at least it's in there, but we just didn't have space or time to write about it. And then we were in conversation with one of our colleagues, Farah Sharma, who is in the external relations uh, department here at NYU, uh, who works works with us on all the programs. And we've been talking about sort of transmedia approaches to this because in the two years, in the five years since we started work on this, our history has grown so much, 
and we can't always make this based off of a book, but we're thinking about how we can, we could easily have had another doorstop on the same period with completely different authors, completely different productions, and it would have been just as moving. So I think we are also gonna think about how we can then turn this into something that lives online and can be an evolving archive. Yes, because this is also about building history, indeed, and history is always selective. It's never comprehensive, otherwise it's just a repeat of what already happened, and that's not what history is supposed to be. Uh, Bill, I, I think this was a wonderful question to end on, so let me project forward. This doorstop, seven years from now, the second, well, nine years, but I guess, let's say, taking it to 2030, what's ahead for the Art Center? What do you anticipate? doing yet more of, and where do you think some further things you might redirect? So I circle back often to an article that I read in the New York Times in the first week of December in 2014. Uh, that was an article about the still forthcoming Guggenheim, and it was in, there was a quote with His Excellency Zuckerman Sigis, and it was one of these responses to a somewhat cynical question about the implications of culture and institutions. And I remember that the response was, we, we are lucky to have the ability to accelerate this process, but it's an intergenerational, it's a generational strategy that we imagine not the people who are here in the years that these institutions are built, but what happens with the people who it's been there in their entire lives. And we do a lot of work, again, not, not really talked about in the book, where we have school groups who are coming to many of our shows and invited matinees. We have had students who came on class trips to the art center who then applied to NYUAD and were already graduated and are now artists out in the world and they're working at other cultural institutions. And that, I think that arc is a very long one. And so when I think about projecting the future, I think about an institution that has that sense of permanence, that also has a sense of really building on the idea that people who were there and were formed by what we do and hopefully had their minds sort of expanded in certain ways are now creating work that we've never even dreamed of. More of that to come by 2030. Thank you for reminding us of the very important role of the Art Center in nurturing and developing artists, which you do in so many ways, and curators and producers as well. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for being here for this milestone moment of celebrating this wonderful book on the Art Center in the past seven years. And please, let's You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.